there are growing lines of division within the body of Christ. Personal opinions and preferences on a host of issues are causing alarming levels of division, disunity, and distrust in the body of Christ. And not only is there division about these issues, there, there's division about how we should solve these issues. Many take to researching and then trumpeting whatever version of science they believe and seek to tear down whatever the other side's science says. The solution is to, to follow the particular branch of science the promoter is pushing on either side. Many take to pushing a political agenda. The solution is change in government, one way or the other, from either side or the other. But praise God, we don't trust in science. (laughs) Praise God, we don't trust in government. That is not where our hope is. And praise God, the unity in the body of Christ does not depend upon everyone having the same opinion about everything. We trust firmly and squarely upon the revealed word of God. We unite around the truth of God's word and not our opinions. The litmus test of fellowship is not our opinions about cultural matters. It's the truth of God's word. God has given us his sufficient word to guide us, to direct us in the face of all external and internal threats to the church. And our passage for this morning is actually sufficient to correct these major issues. It's sufficient for us. You, you want to know the path forward, what we should do with all the external, with all the internal threats to the church? This passage is sufficient to instruct us, to strengthen us, to unite us, to stand against external and internal threats. In the letter of First Peter, Peter is writing to churches that are undergoing intense persecution and suffering. External threats were abounding, but Peter is also sure at the very same time throughout this letter to remind his readers that they need to focus on loving one another, that they need to focus on being united together. His main purpose in the letter is stated in chapter 5, verse 12, where he exhorts these churches to stand firm in what? In the true grace of God. In this section that our passage is in this morning from chapter 4, verse 12, through the end of the letter, he is exhorting them to stand firm in the midst of suffering, to stand firm in the midst of struggle and opposition. It is in this call to trust God in the midst of suffering that we come to our passage for this morning. In these five verses in 1 Peter 5, we're going to be looking at three exhortations for a persevering church. Three exhortations for a persevering church. So whatever external pressures come, whatever internal divisions face us, this is what we need to focus on. This is what we need to give ourselves to. This is the way forward. This is the path for the church that will persevere through external and internal adversity. There will be many things that seek to distract us. There are many things that seek to distract us, that pull and vie for our attention. Social media and media news networks are built to keep your attention. That's their job. That's what they want to do. They're designed in order to hook you and to keep you watching, to keep you feeding off whatever it is that they're saying, whatever it is that they're promoting on either side. In stark contrast is the voice of our God calling to us in this passage, in these exhortations. You can focus on all these things the world is pushing us to focus on. Social media and media are pushing us. This is what you need to concern yourself with. This is what you need to be thinking about. And this is how you're supposed to think about it. And here's God. 
And here's God's word calling to us. Focus on this. Be given to this. Who will we listen to? In each of these three exhortations for a persevering church, Peter addresses a different audience within the church. The first exhortation that he offers is for the elders of the church, for the shepherds of the church. And his exhortation to them is that they would simply shepherd the flock. Shepherds are to shepherd the flock. Look again at verses 1 through 4 of 1 Peter 5. It says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Peter begins his exhortations with the elders or the pastors, the shepherds of the church. Because of the present circumstances of his readers, of the suffering and the future judgment that he just detailed in the previous section of this letter, Peter turns to exhort and strongly urge the elders of the churches that he is addressing. He turns to them first and foremost in this section because they would likely be the ones who would face persecution first. That's what typically happens in these kinds of situations. And so elders would be tempted to abandon their post, to give themselves to something else. And so they needed exhortation to persevere in faithfulness. Now, by way of reminder for most of us, the Bible uses the terms pastor and elder and overseer or bishop interchangeably. These terms are all speaking about one office in the local church. They're all actually in this passage before us this morning. There's the noun for elders as he's addressing this office, the elders in the church. But the term pastor is simply the noun form for the verb shepherd the flock of God. That's where we get the word pastor from. It's a shepherd. Also in this passage is uh, the, the verb exercising oversight. It's something an elder does. The noun form is used in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 to speak of overseers. All of these three terms are talking about the same office, the same group of men who are leading the local church. So as you think about the leaders in our church, I think we often think, well, Pastor Brett is our pastor. Pastor's his first name, right? No, he's not our only pastor. Terry Engling is one of our pastors. Sam Carl is one of our pastors. Brett Harris, Dawson Bryant, Mark Kristiniak, Rob Stouffer. These men are our pastors. They are our pastors. Elders. Elders are pastors. Pastors are elders. There's no distinction in the New Testament. They're shepherds given by God to this church. Now, before you tune out saying, Well, I'm not one of those men, so why do I need to listen to this? And I don't ever want to be one of those men, so I don't have to listen to this, right? Now, I want to encourage you to pay attention to what Peter has to say here. I think in light of even last week's sermon on Romans 15 and how we're supposed to pray for our preachers, I think this passage is a helpful supplement for our prayers for the men who are leading us. Plead for our elders in light of this text. Pray that they will, by the grace of God, be faithful to what this text calls them to. Not only that, but at the same time, pray that your heart would be inclined to want this from our pastors. Pray that your heart would be inclined to want pastors who give themselves to what this text outlines. We often have unbiblical expectations for our pastors. We want them to be political champions. We want them to be entertainers. We want them to have a certain kind of personality, a certain kind of 
humor. We want them to have the same opinions as us and to champion those opinions from the pulpit. Pray that by the grace of God, he would grant you to repent of those unhelpful and unbiblical expectations and to bend your heart to want what this text has to say from our pastors. So so what does Peter exhort the elders to hear? Well, before he exhorts them by instruction, he wants to encourage them and exhort them by his example. I think that's what he's doing in the first verse. He's exhorting them by his example. He does this first by identifying himself with them as a fellow elder. This is, you recall, the apostle Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, that once proud man who confronted Jesus about his mission to die on the cross and said, no, you can't do that. This is the man who boasted that he would never abandon Christ only to deny him three times. God's grace has been at work in this man over his life to humble him. He says, look, I'm a co-elder with you. I'm in the trenches with you. I know what it's like to lead the church in persecution in the face of opposition. I'm a co-laborer with you men. And not only that, but he says, I'm a, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, if you think about that, Peter wasn't a witness to the crucifixion, more than likely. Remember, he denied Christ and then fled, so he likely didn't see Christ on the cross. But yet he still saw Jesus suffer. He saw him rejected by his people. He saw him betrayed by Judas, one of his closest followers. He saw Jesus arrested. But I think that what Peter is seeking to emphasize here is that he is someone who proclaims and testifies to Christ's sufferings through his message and through the life that he lives suffering with Christ. Because as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, he also suffered for Christ. Peter dedicated his life to proclaiming the life, death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus Christ. And he suffered in doing so. Even as recorded in the book of Acts, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was opposed. He was well acquainted with suffering. And he reminds them of that here. But he also reminds them that he is a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. He says, look, I've been through the suffering. I know what it is to suffer. I know what you're going through. But I've seen the glory that's coming. I, I know the reward that we're looking to. I've tasted of the goodness of what God has for us. So, Peter says, I think in this first verse to the elders, follow me. Follow my example. Look at my example. See how I have labored as an elder, as a leader in the church, enduring intense persecution, being a witness for Christ, looking ahead to the glorious future that awaits. Now he's saying, you elders, do likewise. Follow in my footsteps. So he exhorts them by his Example in verse 1 and then in verse 2, he turns to exhort them by instruction. He exhorts them by instruction and he says, he charges the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Now Peter uses these terms kind of as a picture that would have been familiar to his original audience, that of a shepherd and sheep. And if we want to understand what Peter means by elders shepherding the flock of God, we simply need to ask, well, what did a good shepherd do for his sheep? How did a good shepherd take care of the flock that was assigned to him? Well, primarily a shepherd cared for the sheep. A shepherd didn't drive sheep like we drive cattle. He led the sheep. He walked before them. He led the sheep to feed in green pastures. He brought them to calm waters so that they could drink. He provided food and drink for the sheep. He protected the sheep from wolves and lions and thieves, putting himself in between the danger of whatever the threat was and the sheep. 
He cared for their injuries. He watched over them. He kept track of his sheep and he searched out the ones who wandered away from the fold, seeking to bring them back. He didn't take advantage of the sheep. He surely didn't devour the sheep for his own benefit. He didn't use or abuse the sheep. He did whatever was best for the sheep, even at cost or risk or danger to himself. That's what a good shepherd did, and that's what a good elder does. This is what an elder is supposed to do. You could sum up their responsibilities by saying that they are to provide for the sheep and protect the sheep. They provide for the sheep and they protect the sheep. They provide the sheep with the spiritual food and the refreshing fountain of God's word. They lead the sheep. They provide counsel, guidance, direction for the sheep. They're with the sheep in difficult times. They protect They nurture and care for the sick and wounded of the sheep. They provide correction, rebuke, discipline, instruction. They teach the sheep. And they protect the sheep from spiritual danger, from false teaching. They protect the sheep from theological error and misinterpretations of scripture. They protect the sheep from sinful dangers inside and outside the church. And they're ultimately to follow the example of Jesus, the good shepherd, who laid down his life for the good of the sheep. But what sheep are they supposed to shepherd? Peter qualifies the sheep here in two ways. First, as the flock of God, the flock that belongs to God, as well as the flock that is among you. Back at the beginning of verse 1, he also says that the elders are among you. That is among the church, among the flock. So first, the shepherds need to have at the foundation of their understanding that they are under shepherds. Meaning the sheep aren't theirs. It's the flock of God. They're God's sheep. They belong to Jesus who is the chief shepherd as this passage says. So elders have a delegated responsibility and authority over the sheep. They're not owners, but stewards and managers. Their view of God and their relationship with God will be reflected in the care that they provide for his sheep. They shepherd the sheep in the way that God has told them to because the sheep belong to God. They don't shepherd the sheep in accordance with the desires of the sheep. The sheep don't determine how they get shepherded. The chief shepherd determines how the sheep are to be shepherded. This isn't a very democratic approach to church life. But the church is not a democratic assembly. We're owned by God. We belong to God. So God tells the shepherds how they are to care for his sheep. And also he says the sheep who are among you, elders, that's who you are to shepherd. That's who you are to care for. It's the sheep that are among you. You're not to shepherd all people, all times, all places, anybody who professes to be a Christians, a Christian. No, they're to shepherd the sheep in their flock. And they're also to be among the flock. The flock knows their shepherds. The shepherds know their sheep. They aren't distant from the sheep. They're among the sheep. And this points out, I think, practically just the importance of church membership. Who are the sheep that belong to these shepherds of this church? How do we know that? Well, church membership is how we know that. That's how elders know who the sheep that they're supposed to care for are. And Peter further explains what elders are to do as shepherds by saying they are to exercise oversight. They're to exercise oversight. This word further specifies what shepherding looks like. It's a taking responsibility for someone. It's caring for someone, being a guardian over somebody. It's also someone who sees to it that things are done in the right way, like a supervisor. They're supervisors. So elders must accept the responsibility for the care of the flock and must supervise or oversee the sheep, making sure things are done in a biblical way in the church. They're to guide the church to make sure it stays in line with scripture and then correct it when that isn't the case. Elders have a God-given authority to lead and oversee and supervise the church. 
Now to this point, what Peter has described has largely been concerning the what of being an elder. What are they supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to shepherd. They're supposed to oversee. That's what they're supposed to do. But now he turns his attention to the how and the who. What does the heart of an elder look like? How is he supposed to go about this task of shepherding? What should motivate the heart of a shepherd? What should not motivate him? How should he shepherd and lead and oversee? And who is a good shepherd? Well, that's what he answers in the rest of this passage. He says they're to exercise and shepherd. They're to shepherd and exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. They're to shepherd, to be elders, to elder, not because they have to, not because they were forced or coerced into it, not simply because there was a need to be filled, but they're to shepherd voluntarily or willingly. This means they're to shepherd deliberately, intentionally, voluntarily, spontaneously, because they want to, because it's something they want to do. It's something they have a desire to do. To shepherd in this way is to shepherd according to the will of God. Very literally, this would read according to God. As one commentator says, he says, the focus is on oversight performed with a due sense of accountability to God. So an elder must want to shepherd in God's way, according to God, not according to their own fleshly desires. He also says they are to shepherd not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Sordid gain, we often think that's just referring to monetary gain, and I think it is, but I think it's referring to more. I think he's saying someone shouldn't become an elder for gain of notoriety, or to gain an appearance in the eyes of others, or to gain influence. That's not what's supposed to motivate somebody to be an elder. Peter says that would be sordid or shameful. On the flip side of that, he says elders are to shepherd with eagerness. This word means they are to shepherd with the heart of a servant, seeking others' interests above their own. They're to be eager to meet and serve the needs of others rather than seeking gain for themselves. Finally, regarding the how of shepherding, elders are to shepherd. He says, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I think what Peter probably has in mind here when he's referring to lording it over those allotted to your charge, this was a phrase that was commonly used to refer to slave masters who were dominating over their slaves. That's not what Christian leadership is supposed to look like. Elders aren't to be domineering or dominating. They don't push the sheep around. They don't just tell the sheep what to do, bark at the sheep. They don't boss the sheep. They don't act like they're the Lord of the sheep. And here, Peter's likely hearkening back to the teaching of Christ in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, where Jesus says, it says, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And just as that passage in Matthew 20 teaches, so here in 1 Peter 5, elders are to shepherd by being examples, by being examples. Christian leadership is by humble, self-sacrificial, servant-like example. I love, I love being a dad. I have three kids, they're five, three, and almost one. It's one of the greatest joys of my life to be entrusted to care for my three kids that the Lord has given to us. And so I haven't been a dad for very long, but the longer that I'm a dad, the more important I realize how important it is that I be a good example to my kids. Everything I do, they do. And that's true in the little things in life 
faces that I make. I see my kids make those same faces, phrases that I use or that Haley uses. Our kids will say some of those same phrases, the way we pronounce words. You see how your kids follow your example, especially in the things we don't want them to, right? That, that always seems to be the case. Have you ever noticed that? That they always pick up whenever that one word comes out of your mouth that you'd rather they not say, and then they're like, oh, that word, I'm going to say it a lot. <laughs> Great. Or the way you sinfully react when things don't go your way. I've was convicted of that as I was studying this week. My three-year-old likes to throw fits when things don't go his way. And I'm like, where does he get that from? But they also pick up on the good things. I've heard my daughter pray things that I've prayed in her hearing a number of times. My kids repeat truths that we've taught to them repeatedly. Being a good example is fundamental to being a good parent. Being a good example is fundamental to being a good elder. That's what our elders are for us. Yes, they're teachers. Yes, they teach us. Yes, they instruct us. But the lives of our elders are examples for us. An example is a person regarded in terms of their fitness to be imitated. They live the Christian life in a way that's to be imitated by the congregation. We're to see how they follow Christ and we're to follow Christ that way, like them. Elders are to be able to say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the call of being an elder. This is why the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 are so important. It's not just a checklist to see who's good enough or something like that. No, those, those, quali- those character qualifications of an elder, that's what it means to be an elder. By simply being those things, an elder is eldering. An elder is shepherding by being an example to the flock. If the church is to persevere in the face of external and internal opposition, the church does not need comedians. The church does not need culturally savvy shepherds. The church doesn't need political pundits. The church doesn't need celebrity pastors with big personalities and flashy light shows. The church doesn't need culturally opinionated influencers. That's not what the church needs. The church needs humble shepherds. Men who are simply faithful. The church needs men who love the Lord and love his flock in a self-sacrificial way like Christ did. The church needs men who are examples of what it means to live a holy life. The church needs men who love their wives as Christ loved the church. The church needs men who follow Christ in such a way that's worthy of imitating. We need men like this. It's arrogant to think, I don't need that. Church, we need men like this. But is that what you want? Is this what you're looking for from our elders? Or are you looking for something else? Do you want a political hero? Do you want a champion of your personal opinions? Do you want to be entertained? Or do you want shepherds who simply shepherd the flock of God? Do you actually want supervision? Do you want oversight in your life? Do you want to be instructed? Do you want to be corrected? Do you want to be protected and provided for? Do you want godly examples to follow? Again, or do you arrogantly think you don't need that? That's Peter's exhortation to the shepherds. Shepherd the flock. Be faithful examples to the flock. Oversee the flock. 
And this is just direct, directly applicable in our context as well. This is straight to our elders, and, and they know this, and I'm sure this is a, I hope and pray this is simply a helpful reminder to them of what they're to give themselves to. But brothers and sisters, we, we are so blessed to have the elders that we have. Our elders are practicing this. This is what our elders are seeking to give themselves to. They're simply seeking to be faithful examples of normal Christians and putting their feet down and giving us footprints to follow. We, we should be thankful. We should be regularly thankful to God for giving us the elders that he has given us. Grumbling and discontentment in your heart about what the elders are doing or not doing, that's not the elder's problem. That's your problem. Because God has laid out for them what they are to do. And in all of the nonsense and mess of our current moment, these men have been striving to stay focused on what matters, simply shepherding the flock of God, being faithful examples to the flock. I hope you know they spend hours praying for every single member of this church. Did you know that? They spend hours praying for you. They spend hours in meetings laboring simply to be faithful in what this text is calling them to do in leading and overseeing the church. Elders of Summit Woods, I, I think I speak on behalf of this church when I say that we are grateful to God for you. We are thankful to God for you. And I hope you, I hope you know that. We're thankful for your shepherding, your leadership, the example that you set for us. We praise God for you. And especially in the past two years. I know it's not been easy, but we are thankful to the Lord for you men. And at the same time, I want to exhort you as this passage is exhorting you to keep doing what you're doing. Continue down the road that you are leading the church. Continue faithfully shepherding the sheep at Summit Woods. Simply seek to continue to be faithful models of what it looks like to follow Christ. And I think I speak on behalf of the church again when I say that's what, that, that is what we want. That is what we want. There might be times when we act like dumb sheep and we try to have our way or force our opinions or elevate our opinions, but we really do want faithful shepherds. So by the grace of God, press on, keep going, keep devoting yourselves to prayer and the teaching of the word. And I think there's something in this passage here to motivate you. He gives you a promise of reward. Look at verse four with me. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Look ahead. In the midst of whatever current difficulty is going on, elders, look ahead, cling to this promise, the promise that when Christ returns, you will be eternally rewarded for your service to him. Endure the difficult times when we, the sheep, when we stink, when we bite the hand that's feeding us, be motivated by this promise from God. Be motivated by this reward from the hand of your Savior. While the world toils and labors for perishable crowns of money, comfort, fame, success, recognition, this passage is reminding you this is an unfading crown of glory. It does not perish. It is unfading. So pursue it with fervor. Having elders with this focus, being motivated by these things, shepherding in these ways is how the church will persevere. Without godly, qualified, imitable elders, the church will fracture and crack. We will cave to external pressure. We will fissure and divide internally. So church, look to our elders. Look to the example that they're setting, even in how we navigate having various opinions, 
How are our elders doing that? What's their example? Not what's their opinion. How do they hold that opinion? What is the example that they're setting for us? Follow their example. And that leads us to our second exhortation in this text because Peter doesn't just exhort the elders in this passage. He turns to the flock. Secondly, he turns to the flock and he says, flock, follow the shepherds. Flock, follow the shepherds. Look at the first part of verse five with me. He says, you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. Now throughout the letter of first Peter, he's used this term likewise when he's changing audience, but similar principles still apply or the exhortation is still what is happening. So he is still exhorting here, but he addresses you younger men or you who are younger. Now some commentators think this is referring to age, just referring to young men in the church, but I think in light of how Peter is using the term elder, he's not just using the term elder in terms of older people in the church. He's referring to a specific office in the church. So I think this exhortation, he's talking to everybody else. If you're not an elder, this is the exhortation for you. This is for everybody else. How are you to relate to our pastors? He tells us, be subject. Be subject to your elders. This is the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 3 that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere to describe the wife's submissive relationship to the husband. So in the same way a wife is to follow her husband's loving leadership so the sheep are supposed to follow the loving leadership of their shepherds. We're to submissively place ourselves under the care of these men, not other men. Be subject to the elders in your church. These are the elders you're subject to. You're not called to be submitted to any other pastor that you find online, listen to their podcast, theologians, whoever it is. You have no responsibility to submit to them. You have a responsibility and an obligation to submit to the elders in this church. That's your priority. Men of Summit Woods, I want to address you specifically. Are you submitting to the elders of the church in a way that reflects how you would desire for your wife to submit to you? Or are you rebellious? Do you kick at authority? Do you try to wiggle away from Authority? Do you try to get out from underneath the authority that God has ordained? Well, you know, I'm, I know my pastors would tell me this, but I really think I know better, so I'm going to kind of do my own thing. Do you like it if your wife does that? If you're having a discussion about purchasing furniture and you as the husband, you're trying to lovingly lead and you're thinking, well, financially we've got some things going on and there's some expenses that are upcoming and you're like, I think it would be best if we waited to purchase this furniture set. And then the wife goes out and purchases the furniture set anyways. Do you like that? Is that what you want? Is that the kind of submission that you would like from your wife? And yet, are you submitting to the elders in that way? If you have a problem with submission, you have a problem with Christianity. The Christian life is a life of submission. Submission to Christ, submitting to the government, submitting to one another, wives submitting to their husbands, children submitting to their parents. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Peter exhorts the congregation to submit to the elders. There are no rebels in the kingdom of God. Former rebels, yes, but a disposition, a fixed posture of rebelling against authority is not something that pleases God. And within the body of Christ, it's no different. Yes, I'm aware there are times we must obey God when authority tells us to sin. But that is the exception not the norm. Our posture is to be one of submission. 
The flock is to be submissive, following the loving leadership of the shepherds as they submissively follow the chief shepherds. So, flock, church of Summit Woods, I exhort you by the word of God, submit to our elders. This is how the church will persevere. This is how the church will persevere. We'll we'll be tempted in all kinds of ways when the hostility grows. We'll want to bend. We'll want to cave. When disunity rises in the church, our blood will boil. We'll want to take sides. We'll want to take up arms against one another. Instead, submit to the leadership that God has sovereignly placed over you. To kick at it is to kick at God. Because who's the one who placed the elders over us? God. Don't foster division in the body. Stop listening to the other voices and listen to the voice of the chief shepherd as it is echoed through his under shepherds that he has graciously given you in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect love for us. You're called to submit to our elders here at Summit Woods. I grew up on a small farm. We had all kinds of livestock, different animals growing up. We had cows, horses, we had hunting dogs, we had goats, chickens. And as a child, it was my privilege to uh, take care of a variety of these different animals growing up at different points in my life. I had various responsibilities. And, And I don't know how many times we had to deal with unsubmissive livestock. A bull that would just constantly be pushing the limits and getting out of our pasture and getting into the neighbor's pasture and we're out there chasing it around in the truck and the rooster that wanted to fight me every single time I walked into the pen, the hunting dog that would get loose and would not listen. Those animals were a pain in my neck. They made my life rather difficult and unpleasant at times. But at the same time, we we also had a lot of submissive livestock. We had this, it was the weirdest chicken. She, she just loved people. She would just like walk up a chicken. She would walk up to us and want to be held and petted and just whatever, you know, we'd walk into the pen. This chicken would just be following us around everywhere. Weirder than that though, was the cow that we had that was a, it was a bottle fed calf. It got kicked in the head like the day it was born and the mom rejected it. And so we had to raise it by a bottle and it only, it was like this tall, full grown. It was like this little He was a little slow, but he was the easiest cow to take care of. He was like a dog. We didn't even have to keep him in the pasture. We'd just leave the gate open and he would just walk around the yard. We'd be sitting there eating dinner and he'd like walk up to the back door, like looking in, like what's going on and like trying to get him back in the pen. Like you'd just walk down there. He would just follow you down there. He'd go right back in the pen. It was kind of weird too, because anytime you talk to him, he would shake his head. (laughs) His name was Norman. Norman? Is that good grain? I don't know if I'm saying be like Norman, but some of Woods, again, I'm not calling you livestock. Peter is, you know, but, but let's be good sheep. Let's be submissive sheep that make our shepherd's job a joy, not a pain in the neck. So submission To be clear, doesn't mean you don't think. It doesn't mean you don't ask questions. It doesn't mean you always agree. Does your wife always agree with you men? No. It doesn't mean we have the same opinions and preferences. Of course, submission doesn't mean that you would ever sin under the authority of the elders if they're telling you to sin. That's a pretty far-fetched scenario, I think. But submission means you recognize the God-ordained roles in the local church and you gladly place yourself under the elders and seek to follow their lead. So the shepherds are to shepherd the flock. The flock is to follow the shepherds. Now Peter turns to address everyone. He turns to address the entire church as a whole. And this is what ties it all Together, this is the common thread actually through this entire section. His third exhortation to everyone is that they should pursue humility. Everyone pursue humility. Look at the second half of verse five with me. He writes, all of you, all of you, 
clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is the most characteristic of shepherds who shepherd like verses two through four prescribe? Humility. What is the most characteristic of a flock that submissively follows its shepherds? Humility. Why would an elder shepherd in a self-serving or domineering way? Pride. And why would sheep not submit to the elders God has placed over them? Pride. Pride. That's why Peter exhorts everyone to clothe themselves with humility because humility is what is required to carry out the exhortations that he has made. There was a noun form of this verb to clothe yourself. The noun form of this verb was actually used to speak of a servant's apron. So it wasn't just any kind of clothing that Peter is talking about here when he says clothe yourselves. This is a very specific, put on the servant's apron. We're to all put on the servant-like clothing of humility. Humility is having a proper estimation of self and a high view of God that flows out in love for and service to others. It's a lowliness that sees self as a servant to others. How can I serve other people? That question should constantly be rolling through your mind, particularly in terms of your relationships within the church. How can I serve other people? How can I serve other people? Humility is having this estimation of self, but it's not self-pity. I think sometimes we confuse humility with self-pity. We can think we're humble if we're self Pitying and oh, poor me, you know, that Eeyore like syndrome. But that's just being focused on yourself. Self pity is focusing on yourself. It's thinking, I deserve better than what I have. And that's just a veiled kind of pride. That's not what humility is. Humility is being like Christ as Paul lays out in Philippians chapter 2 starting in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's humility. Humility is pursuing being like the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we're all to pursue is humility. Now, if we think about the church as, as like a car motor, an engine, humility is the oil that constantly reduces friction and keeps things running smoothly without oil in a motor, the motor will burn up and break down. When we clothe ourselves with humility, that results in love and seeking simply to serve others, not seeking to exalt ourselves, not seeking to gain anything, not selfishly pursuing our own interests or opinions or preferences. We're simply seeking to serve one another. And in that kind of atmosphere, how could there be conflict and division? Division is always the result of pride. And a church under pressure that needs exhortation to persevere is certainly at risk to divide. So not just thinking about a normal car motor, but if it's placed under a load when it's driven really hard, when the pedal is pushed to the metal and there's opposition and there's whatever, you're on a rough road. If there's low oil, something's going to go wrong much quicker. Same is true of a church that's low on humility and the external pressure is mounting. Something is going to go wrong quickly. 
The church needs humility coursing through every member in order to endure difficulty and keep running smoothly. And this is even elevated further in the reason that Peter gives for this exhortation in the last part of verse 5. We're to clothe ourselves with humility. He says, why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Amid a prideful people, there's going to be division. But this quotation from Proverbs 3 says that God is opposed to the proud. Not only will there be division because we're prideful and we're fighting each other, but we're, we're going to set ourselves against God. He's going to set himself against us and be opposed to us. Prideful shepherds and prideful sheep, those who exalt themselves, who seek their own interests, God sets himself in battle formation against them. Not only will the, back to the motor illustration, not only is the motor going to be low on oil, so there's already going to be friction. It's like the neighbor kid is coming over and pouring sand in the motor. And not only that, but there's a police barricade set up with weapons drawn to oppose it. It's not going anywhere. It's stuck. But the humble, those who are lowly, who see themselves as servants to others in light of the greatness and grace of God, Peter says they receive the grace of God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We desperately need God's grace. Our elders need grace to shepherd the flock. We need grace to submit and follow the shepherds. We all need grace to clothe ourselves with humility. And God then gives grace to the humble. This attitude of humility, it's an attitude, it's a posture of neediness. It sees ourselves as insufficient to carry out these exhortations. Humility is dependence. It recognizes the need for divine enablement, the need for grace. Are we constantly looking to God for grace? Are we seeking to humble ourselves so that we're not receiving the opposition of God, but instead the grace of God? Peter's final exhortation is that the church walk in humble dependence on the grace of God to be faithful shepherds and submissive sheep. We need to pursue humility This is the path forward. This is how we will persevere through external, internal opposition and adversity. We pursue humility. Shepherds, are you, elders, are you feeling overwhelmed with the exhortations in this passage? They are weighty. They are heavy. Be reminded once again to give yourself to simply shepherding the flock of God by his grace and for his glory. Sheep, is it hard for you to submit to the shepherds? There's hope in God's grace through humble dependence. So humble yourselves. God's grace is sufficient for us to carry out these exhortations. God's grace is sufficient for us to stand firm, to persevere. We can persevere no matter the adversity if we give ourselves to these exhortations by the grace of God. Let's look to him for his grace in prayer.